This year has seen Jimmy's Jobs talk to some of the most influential minds in the UK, from Rishi Sunak and Andrew Bailey, right through to Martha Lane Fox. These are the thinkers and shapers of the British economy, the voices that generate headlines and shape the national debate. Today's guest is a worthy addition to this list. Matt Clifford, MBE, is the founder of Entrepreneur First, a unique institution in the UK economy that backs entrepreneurs for who they are more than their ideas. We had Matt's co-founder, Alice Bentonick, on the show late last year, and since then the pair have written a book, How to Be a Founder. It has become one of my go-to recommendations for people starting out on their entrepreneurial journey. Matt has also recently taken up a new position as the chair of the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, or ARIA for short, where he'll oversee the funding of transformational UK science and technology. It is based on the DARPA model from the United States, which was so influential behind the founding of Silicon Valley. We talk a bit in the show about the UK's attempts to recreate Silicon Valley, and it's a theme that I pick up in my Times column this week. I will be republishing that through my email newsletter on Substack. Just check the show notes for a link as where you can sign up. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners. And I wanted to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you can partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now on to today's episode. Matt, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks so much for having me. So you've just written the book, How to Be a Founder. Why did you write the book? Yeah, so Alice and I wrote this book really for two reasons. So one, we uh, have been running Entrepreneur First for a decade. And when you've done something for a decade, one, hopefully you've learned something. And two, you find that you get asked the same questions all the time. And so the aim of the book in many ways is to try and answer the questions we get asked most often in hopefully a very distilled uh, form. But the second reason and the bigger reason is that although there is now a ton of entrepreneurship, in the UK and you know, around the world, what there isn't actually a lot of is what we would call high growth entrepreneurship. People starting companies that go on to create a lot of jobs uh, and a lot of value. And so we, we wanted to think hard about what is the book you would want people to read if you wanted them not just to start businesses, but to start businesses that could be really big. And hopefully that's what we've done uh, in the book. And one of the key things you talk about it a lot is edges and how to kind of find your edge and edge being very different from passion. But just talk us through the different edges for people that are thinking of starting a business. Yes, if you zoom out, one of the things that we hope is different about this book is most books that are about startups or about business building start from the assumption that you already know what business you want to work on, what the idea is, who you want to work with. 
who your customer is, what your product is, all those things. And, and that's great. Like there's, there's obviously, a, it's really important that there are books out there that tell people how to take a startup and make it better. Uh, what this book does, How to Be a Founder, is instead of uh, assuming that stuff already exists, it assumes that none of that exists. So it actually starts from the individual pre-company pre-idea, pre-team, and walks people through that whole journey. And this is where the idea of edge comes in, because what we've been doing for the last decade at Entrepreneur First is trying to evaluate founders before they have companies. That's really hard, because if you look at how most venture capitalists, most angel investors work, a lot of the way they decide whether or not to invest is by asking questions about the business, of course. But how do you do it if like EF, you have to make a decision before there is a business? Well, one of the key answers is edge. So edge uh, is an idea that we came up with as a sort of shorthand for what you might call a personal competitive advantage. So our thesis is, even if you don't know what someone's going to work on, even if you don't know what the idea is yet, you can learn a lot about what kind of founder they might be and whether they might be successful by saying, what is it in this person's background, in their skills, in their experience, maybe even in their hobbies and interests, um, that could be the basis of them being a, a founder of a successful company. And so uh, as, as you sort of say, Jimmy, there's lots of different kinds of edges. We, we focus on three in the book. Um, the first is sort of uh, what you might call a, a market edge or, or a domain edge. It's, it's really where you know something about a problem or an industry. You've seen up close you know, how, how something works and where it's broken. And so your edge is that you you have some insight that wouldn't be straight, uh, you know, shared by you know the average person on the street about where there, where there's an opportunity. And so you know often this is people that have, as I said, worked in a space are frustrated by it and say someone needs to fix this. That could be an edge, a domain or a market edge. There's another kind of edge that we that we're interested in, which is sort of more of a technical edge. So someone who really knows how to do something. Um, there's, uh, they can build things that other people can't build. There's a, and maybe a technology that they've become very expert in through study or work or hobbies. And the reason that matters is that at EF we're very focused on on tech businesses, on uh, on, on startups that are building sort of software, typically sometimes hardware. And so what we're interested in there is people that have a personal competitive advantage in being able to build things that others can't. Then the third kind of edge we talk about is people who are just real catalysts for making things happen. Um, you know, you can almost think of this as the maybe the classic entrepreneurial edge that there are people who just have a track record of making something out of nothing. Uh, and when you talk to them about their experiences, these examples come up all the time. So there are three kinds of edges we talk about. But I think the core idea is that even if you don't yet have a startup idea, your edge, really understanding your edge, can be the basis for coming up with one. And there's a perception with those edges, and there's a wider perception of EF, that it's a bit like that Royal Marines advert in the 1990s, kind of like 99% of people need not apply, right? That this is kind of the elite for the elite. Is that a fair description? We always like to say at EF that it's elite but not elitist. And what we mean by that is you're absolutely right. It's very selective at EF, um, partly just because we're in the fortunate position of having so many applicants. I mean, globally, I think roughly 20,000 people apply to EF this year. Um, and, you know, we're selecting a, a few hundred. So, you know, it, it is very selective. I mean, that does mean we're saying no to, to most people. But I think the, the myth is that, you know, the way it's selective is, 
you know, we look at where you went to school, where you went to university, and that's how we select. And that's complete rubbish. We, we, we actually don't care about those things at all. Now, sometimes those things might be a signal of something we do care about, but we have funded people who never went to university. We funded people that went to all sorts of you know, different universities. We funded people with huge technical skill, literally PhDs in in computer science, so we've funded people that, that don't have technical skills. So uh, EF is, is actually pretty diverse, I think probably more diverse than people realize. I think what we don't compromise on is we're looking for people who are extremely ambitious. We, you know, we really, because of our business model, which is about funding you know, companies at the earliest stage, we are looking for people that are trying to do something enormous. Um, and we are looking for people that have the talent to, to, to enable them to do that. So, the, you know, there is a very specific type of entrepreneurship that we're interested in. But I, I think, you know, there are probably some myths about what that means for the kinds of people that we want to select. And, and how do we get more underprivileged people into entrepreneurship? Because I think it's been one of these things that we've seen in the past. Entrepreneurship has been something that sort of rich and privileged people can afford to do. How can we get more people you know, exploring entrepreneurship? Honestly, that's been one of our most important motivations for, for starting EF. I mean, when Alice and I uh, started EF, we, you know, we, didn't, we didn't have money. We didn't have family money. You know, we'd come out of a, a good job, but you know, not, not, not a job that meant we had like vast savings or, or anything. And, and you know, one of the things that we observed was that there was a chicken and egg problem with entrepreneurship, which is that you know, as you're sort of hinting at, you come from a, a background where you know family or others can support you then you can get started but if you if you don't you know even if you've got a brilliant you know set of skills if you're if you're really talented how do you get to the point where you can demonstrate that to people so you can raise money it sort of feels almost that the rich get richer and <laughs> the and other people can't do it um and so one of the things we're proudest of i would say in the whole of ef's history is inventing this idea of paying people uh, to, to leave their job and start something. So I, I believe we were certainly the first in the UK, maybe the first in the world to offer this idea of a stipend for, for would-be entrepreneurs. So the way that EF is structured is that when you join EF, even before you have an idea and completely unconditional on whether we decide to invest in your company, we pay every individual that joins as a stipend for the first three months so that they can you know pay the rent and meet their living costs while they're with us. And we believe you know, very passionately that that's absolutely key because it basically means that people with talent that don't have the money to quit their job can, you know, can, can opt into it. So, you know, that's our, you know, of course we're only funding a few hundred people a year, so I don't want to pretend that's the systemic answer, but I do think that it's pretty important to think about what are the barriers that actually stop people from, from getting started. And, you know, I think the other one that I would, really emphasize and one of the ways that I think venture capital hasn't been as an industry very you know very inclusive is that traditionally because VCs get so many pitches the way that they filter those pitches is they say get a warm introduction you know get someone to who already knows me to introduce you and, and then I'll consider your pitch it sort of makes sense as a filter you know if you're getting thousands of pitches a year and you can only meet hundreds you know maybe that makes sense. But the reality is that the people most likely to know someone who knows you um, are not necessarily the most talented. They're the ones that you know have the best network. Now, network can be correlated with 
success, but it's often correlated with background and, and privilege is the reality. And so, again, one of the things that you know we're proud of at EF is is the fact that it's just an application form. You don't need a warm introduction uh, to to get to us. And you know that that wasn't our idea. I think one of the reasons that why Combinate has been so successful in the US is that. It said, you know, you can just apply. Like you don't need you don't need someone to vouch for you. And so I think just generally what I would say is I think the VC industry as a whole could do with taking a more, you know, thinking hard about what are the things that might stop them seeing the best entrepreneurs that might not be from a privileged background. And so one of the things that you do on this partly to flip it is a lot of the guests that come on this show talk about the problem they had and that led to them starting the company. Of course, the point of Entrepreneur First and what you do is people don't apply with a problem. And I think that's interesting in, in lots of ways because you, you essentially flip that on its head because that's one of the barriers to people stopping you know stopping them from starting something is they don't have an idea. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really tricky one because I think what we have found does not work very well is people who apply with no ideas at all. You know, like if you literally have a blank sheet of paper, you just want to be an entrepreneur for the sake of being an entrepreneur. We find that doesn't really work very well. Um, and, and, and you know, I, I think in general, one of the challenges of the last few years of entrepreneurship becoming quite a sexy career path is you do get more and more people that sort of want to do it for quite nebulous reasons. And, you know, we, we've generally not had a lot of success with those people. But I think there is a, there is a, a more nuanced version of that, which I think is important, which is I think traditional VC not only requires you to have an idea, but it requires you to have really stress test that idea to have like been through the sort of crucible of uh, understanding what VCs look for, understanding what, um, what a good startup idea looks like. And actually, if you're not in that culture, if you're not in that network, how would you, how would you even know? And so, we, we always say EF is less for people without ideas and more for people where the idea is still to be developed, still to be validated. And so I think the innovation that EF brought was not using the idea as a filter. And so when people apply to EF, we do ask them what sorts of things you're interested in working on. And again, to your earlier question, we want to know what that edge is and we want to know how that might lead them to, to focus on certain ideas. But the key thing, and you know, like the thing I love looking back on, we've now built companies worth over $10 billion, and that's fantastic. But you look at the companies that are most valuable, the ones that are worth hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars, and you look at what were the things that their founders wanted to work on in the beginning. And very often, frankly, and I don't think they mind me saying this, they're terrible ideas. Like they're not ideas that any VC would fund. And to me, that's the ultimate validation of what we're trying to do is that we were absolutely right to pick these individuals and want to fund them, even though their ideas were bad. And so it's less, you know, again, if you don't have any ideas, probably entrepreneurship isn't right for you right now. But if you've got lots and you're not sure which is right, then absolutely you shouldn't see the fact that you haven't got like one absolutely nailed down as a barrier. What are the other sort of like traits that you might not expect from those people that have built those kind of hundred million billion dollar companies that have been through because there is sort of you know a stereotype of a startup founder um so it'd be great to hear you kind of bust a few more myths on that side perhaps what are the things that we might not expect well actually i think the single biggest myth and the one that i feel very passionate about trying to debunk wherever i can is that founders are really different from other people i think this is actually a really dangerous myth because i think it leads 
to a lot of people ruling themselves out from entrepreneurship because they think they weren't a born entrepreneur. I, I don't think there's any such thing as a born entrepreneur. Um, I spent a lot of time both practically in building Entrepreneur First and sort of more, I guess, academically reading the literature on entrepreneurship. And I think what you learn is that there are some things, you know, some personality traits that seem to be, you know, more strong in entrepreneurs than in randomly selected members of the population. Like if you go and look at, um, you know, kind of psychological profiles, surprise, surprise, entrepreneurs tend to be more open to new experiences than than people who don't start businesses. But in general, the, the reality is that the things that you look for in successful founders are actually exactly the same things that you look for in successful anything. You know, you want people who are smart and are good problem solvers. You want people who are determined and resilient. You know, you want people who are able to lead and inspire and manage other people. Um, you want people who are able to evaluate um, uh, risk and reward. And so, you know, one thing that we always like to say at EF is the world's missing out on some of its best founders. Uh, and I find that both sort of a daunting uh, mission to, to try and, you know, pursue to, to find the founders the world's missing out on, but also a really inspiring one. And I think if people start from the perspective that actually there's nothing that different about uh, you know these famous people that you've that you've heard of, I, I don't want to pretend they're not very talented. They're extremely talented, but it's not that they had some entrepreneur gene that you know if you had you'd already know it. They're actually they just got started. The main difference between founders and everyone else, they just got started. One of the, th the things, so, so people don't know about EF, like you take kind of a 10% stake in the companies that, that start. And I'd be interested in your reflections in that, having done it for 10 years now. Like you say, the kind of competition for entrepreneurship has got tougher. There's more VCs. There's, you know, the ecosystem's got stronger and stronger. So I'd be fascinated by your kind of reflections on that and that side of the model. But also one of the things that is also a benefit is the kind of ongoing support network effects that you now have of, you know, thousands of founders that have been through the, through the system. And so I'd love to hear a bit about the ongoing support side too. Yeah, so um, Entrepreneur First is structured more or less like a, a, a sort of venture capital fund. I mean, it's a little bit different. We announced in June um, uh, a, a big round of funding, $160 million, led by a, a coalition of well-known entrepreneurs, people like John and Patrick Collison from Stripe, uh, Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn, uh, Tabit Hinrichus from Wise, many others. And, and what that allowed us to do was to... Um, build what you call a permanent capital model where effectively, you know, rather than having a fund that lasts for a fixed period of time, it, it, you know, we, we want to build a effectively a company that lasts forever. Uh, and the reason I mentioned that is that our business model is works only if we can you know, be very early investors in great, in great companies, companies that become very large. And one way of thinking about, about that is that we need to be willing to take a lot of risk in exchange for that. And so, one of the big differences between a, a traditional VC and EF is a traditional VC is largely making you an offer to swap cash for equity. You know, they, they give you a check and they get shares in your company. EF does that, but the money is a tiny, tiny part of the value we add. And actually, you know, one thing we always say to founders, and we're very transparent, is if all you want is the money, there are definitely better options for you out there than, than EF. EF is valuable 
uh, because of the whole suite of things we provide. And, and probably most critical, we want EF to be the best place in the world to find a co-founder. One of the things that we've evolved over the last decade is what we believe to be, you know, the world's best methodology for helping strangers become co-founders. And, you know, I think when we started this, uh, people thought that was crazy and you should never start a company with a stranger today. You know, as I said, sort of $10 billion of companies later on, it looks less crazy. And actually, I think it looks like this is potentially a really important innovation in, in the history of startups. And so what we say to people is like, yeah, you know, you should put some value on the money that we give you, but really... If you want to find a co-founder, we think that's like an invaluable thing and something that EF has a really distinctive edge in providing. Plus, there's all the other things that you've already mentioned, you know, a lot of advice and mentorship, particularly for first-time founders, uh, access to other capital. You know, we spend a ton of time and an effort helping people raise their seed round. Uh, you know, EF companies have raised over a billion dollars of venture capital from, you know, other providers, uh, you know, outside EF. Um, and as you've already said, the, the community and, and one of the nice things about this business, particularly after doing it for a long time, is the network effects within it are really strong. So our best founders go on to refer other great founders to EF. They also hire people that went through EF that don't successfully build companies. They buy from each other. There's a bunch of companies, EF companies that are customers of other EF companies. And so you start to build this sort of ecosystem effect that I think is very powerful. EF marketplace um, yeah. and I mean one of the things we are chatting well on your birthday um, but also the day after Facebook have cut sort of almost 15% of its workforce and one of the things that I wanted to ask you was yeah we've been we've known each other since 2016 and it yeah. almost feels like we've always kind of talked about property market valuations etc however there does this time seem to be a kind of real turning of, of what's going on i'd love to kind of hear your reflections on that because one of the things about ef as well global um company across many continents now as well and so yeah would love your thoughts on what's happening in the wider technology ecosystem yeah i mean there's no doubt that um we are no longer in the in the boom cycle that has characterized the last decade and you know i think it is certainly as you mentioned you know facebook but you know plenty of others you know stripe um obviously you know at least on the day that we're recording this you know the whole crypto world seems to be blowing up like the, the, the industry is going through a pretty tough time but um I think it's really worth putting this into perspective, and, and I'll make two separate points. So, well, before I make the point, I say like, I'm not I'm not a cheerleader for trying to pretend that things are you know up and to the right and it's all all um, uh, all smiles. Like, I, I think it is a good time for both founders and investors to really take stock uh, of both you know kind of where they are and you know what risks they're facing. But I, I do worry that uh, sometimes the 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 way that you know if you just read the headlines the, there is some nuance lost so, so two points to make first is that 2021 was a truly bizarre year in the history of venture capital and i think a lot of what you're seeing now in 2022 can be seen as almost like a return to sanity rather than um you know a horrible downturn i mean i i, I haven't got the data to hand, but it wouldn't surprise me in the end if 2022, for all it feels grim compared to 2021, turned out to be roughly, you know, 
a linear extrapolation from 2019. It's just that there was 2021 in between that made everything else look insane. Um, and and so I would say, you know, like we we should never have, as an industry, have sort of uh, drunk our own Kool Aid on on you know what was happening in 2021. There was some you know deals happening then that you know made made no sense. You know, people investing evaluations that were 100 or 200 times the you know the revenue of the company which you know is is clearly detached from reality so that's the first thing i'd say is like we a lot of the problems we're facing today are a result of getting giddy in 2021 and some founders unfortunately building businesses that assumed that capital would be almost free and abundant forever when that that wasn't the case and you know Clearly, the the issue is not confined to tech. I think you know after a decade of near zero interest rates, there's a lot of adjusting to do. But but I do think that that's the first thing I'd say is a lot of it's a nor- like renorming. But the second thing I'd say, and I think probably applicable to anyone listening who's thinking about entrepreneurship as a as a career path, is that in a way the people that will have the hardest time right now are actually the people that start their companies you know two or three years ago and uh, you know had got into the expectation that if they needed to raise $50 million in six weeks, there were, you know, a dozen firms out there that wanted to do that. Actually, for people just starting out today, it's much less clear that um, that the macro environment is something to worry about. Because, of course, when you're right at the beginning, um, you know, if you go back to the themes in the book, when you're literally picking the idea and doing the initial conversations with customers, the micro risk of whether you can find something that is such a valuable thing that people will pay for it, that risk completely overwhelms any macro risk you face. You know, like you shouldn't worry about, can I raise a hundred million dollars? You should worry about, does anyone care at all about my product? And so the reality is that if you start a company today, by the time the macro environment, you know, is even in your top five risks, you know, it'll be several years from now, probably five, six years from now. And hopefully the world looks very different. And so, you know, undoubtedly there are there are companies, startups facing real challenges today because of the change in funding environment. But actually for those just getting started, it's really not clear that should be in your top 10 concerns. Yeah, well, I think that's a, a fair point. And what other changes, you know, you're a kind of great thinker on these things and trying to step back from it as you did there with kind of valuations and maybe 2021 being an outlier. How do you think the pandemic is going to change the world of entrepreneurship? I mean, do you think the valley is kind of in decline possibly because geography just isn't as important as it was? What are your reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, now that we have a bit of perspective, I always hesitate to say post-pandemic, but, you know, post Post lockdown, you know, post peak, peak pandemic, um, I think it's clear that actually a lot of things that uh, we thought were maybe permanent changes or permanent accelerations back in 2020, 2021 uh, have snapped back, you know, sort of uh, food delivery, e-commerce, you know, if you look at a chart of these things, they're not behind where you'd have expected in 2019, but they're also not actually that far ahead of where you'd have expected if you just extrapolated out the trend. The one big exception to that is remote work. And I think remote work is here to stay. Um, and I think it's going to be a much bigger part of the economy uh, going forward. And I think that uh, every company has to make a decision about how it wants to think about remote work. And the, the reason I say a decision is I do think, I think there's a real trade-off. And and I think it's, I'm neither um, 
you know, like a, a true believer that it's the only way, but nor am I one of these people that believes it's, you know, kind of going to disappear. I think the trade-off looks something like this, which is that the downside of remote work, I do think, is that it's still not that clear that um, training and apprenticeship and mentoring is as easy to implement in an all remote environment. And so it's still not clear to me that, uh, and I'll give a caveat to this in a second, but in general, it's not clear to me that um, the best early career talent will be attracted to uh, all remote companies because I think they will rightly question whether those companies can provide the same accelerated learning experience that that in person, the best in-person companies can provide. The caveat to that is that there are some companies that I think have already demonstrated they can do that in an all remote way. Um, you know, companies like Automatic, which is the maker of WordPress, which powers over 40% of the internet. We're very lucky to have Matt Mullenweg, one of the founder, well, the founder of Automatic is one of our investors. You know, he's been doing this since, you know, like way before, the, you know, a decade before the pandemic, all remote. And when you hear him talk about what it takes to make all remote work, you realize this is not as simple as saying, hey, everyone, you can expense a webcam. You know, like there is real philosophy behind like, how do you make remote work? Um, so I think most companies, if they're not really intentional and deliberate about that, will, will struggle to provide that learning environment. But, and this is where the trade-off comes in, the extraordinary upside of remote work is it allows you to tap into talent pools that would otherwise be completely inaccessible to you. I think that's true of almost every step level of geography. It's true nationally. Um, you know, I, I'm sitting here today, you know, in, in my house in Oxford, and I'm a remote worker, um, and I love it, frankly, you know, uh, now... Uh, is EF tapping into a talent pool that otherwise wouldn't exist? No, because I'm the founder. But it's certainly true that we can access people today through remote that we wouldn't have been able to before. And I think that's certainly even more true when you zoom out and take a global perspective. And so it's not yet obvious how those two effects balance each other out. And I think the answer is it will be different for different companies. But I, I, I do think that that aspect of the pandemic uh, you know, has changed I think has changed things permanently. And I think it's something that every entrepreneur, uh, every executive, everyone thinking about just their own careers needs to take into account in making these decisions. Yeah, I think that's uh, true. And what have you noticed about sort of, you know, co-founding teams and and the the sort of model pre-pandemic of, of EF of putting a load of people in a room and sort of yeah. creating those kind of connections? How's that been sort of impacted by remote work? Yeah, I mean, being being really candid, um, that aspect of COVID was, was a really difficult experience for us. And, um, you know, we were, we were very nervous at the start of the pandemic that, we could, you know, we did not see an obvious way to adapt the, you know, kind of co-founder bonding model to a to a remote environment, and I think broadly that turned out we were actually right to be nervous. I mean, we we were very fortunate that during the pandemic, um, partly because of some of the tailwinds that you know we just discussed, we had a bunch of companies that just accelerated faster than anything we've ever seen before. You know, companies like Omnipresent that build infrastructure for global remote work, companies like Dishpatch, which sort of take, um, you know, an in-person fine dining experience and bring it into your home. These these companies just grew at an amazing rate. And so we overall, you know, we had a economically very successful pandemic period. But what we did find um, was that it really didn't work in our model to build, uh, to help strangers become co-founders if they never met in person. 
And because of the, as you already mentioned, you know, we operate, you know, in six countries around the world and each of them locks down at slightly different times. And so by chance, we got to observe, you know, like different levels of remoteness and what, what they did. What we found was if you had even a few weeks in person, you could then transfer those co-founder relationships remote and they were just as robust as they would have been, you know, the other way, you know, if, they, if they'd always been in person. But the cohorts that never that never started in person that were remote from the beginning, they had a much lower rate of um, team formation than we would normally mm. expect. And so, you know, I have to say, when we could go back to the office, the GMs who run the the sites that we operate around the world, I think they were the happiest people of all. They, they could not wait to be back in the office. <laughs> And one of your uh, roles that you combine with EF on the side is uh, being chairman of the new Advanced Research and Invention Agency. And that's something we'll come back to a bit more in detail. But it is one of the things that you are particularly interested in is kind of the policy landscape um, more broadly. And particularly when it comes to the UK, a conversation that we had with Alice when she came on the show last year was talking about the UK being undervalued. I wondered if that's something that you still think with everything the UK's been through over the last year when it comes to the kind of political changes um, and what more the UK can do to kind of increase its value on the world stage. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that makes me uh, very bullish about the UK is um, when you zoom out and you just say, what are the factors that are going to determine whether or not economies are successful over the next decade? Somewhere in your top three, I think, is going to be science and technology talent. And somewhere in your top three is going to be the ability to attract global talent. And I think on those two measures, the UK really is, I think, you know, global globally leading. You know, like one of the reasons I was willing to, to take on this role with ARIA, despite having quite a busy day job at EF, was I think the UK has per capita, arguably the greatest concentration of, of scientific talent anywhere in the world. And I think that for all the challenges you know, that, that there have been, both specific to the UK and globally, um, and you know, notwithstanding you know, Brexit uh, changing the, the immigration landscape a lot, London remains one of the great talent aggregators globally. And um, you know, we see more, I would, I would say, undiminished appetite for people outside the UK to move to London to build businesses. And so I think if you take those two things, it, it, there are lots of structural challenges that the UK faces and, and frankly, that the world faces today. But those two things make me pretty optimistic about the, the medium to long term, because I do think that you know, science and technology talent is going to only become more important than in the next decade. And I think, you know, what, what can we do more? I think lean into those two things is the answer. Um, you know, I, I think ARIA is a great, you know, it's a, a very impressive commitment uh, from, from government. And I have to say it has, you know, it has cross-party support, which is also great to say that, you know, it is worth us spending serious money to explore ways to make the best use of that talent and to, you know, to explore new ways to practice science. But also, you know, I'm, I have to say as well, I do think the UK has, at least to the countries I know well, the best um, visa system for high-end technological and scientific talent. And I think we need to you know, just 
remember that the, these things are the keys to our success and really um, never stop selling the, the virtues of, of, uh, of that model. Yes, and I, a point I would regularly make in, in number 10 about that kind of immigration system is like, despite all the sound and fury of Brexit and uh, what that entails, like actually, you know, we are always going to be welcoming to those people. It's got cross-party support, etc. Can you just sum up for those that haven't come across ARIA? Because there is a, there's always a slight challenge in our kind of political media debate that we're more interested in Gavin Williamson's text messages and what Matt Hancock's eating on I'm a Celebrity than big announcements like ARIA. Can you just sum it up, what, what it's all about? Yeah, so ARIA is um, is a new kind of funding agency um, you know, created by UK government to fund breakthrough uh, research and development. Our goal is to, to fund scientific and technological breakthroughs. And I, th- I think one way of thinking about, you know, like, well, why, why ARIA? Don't we already have ton? You know, we've got great stuff happening at UKRI, UK Research and Innovation, great stuff happening at Innovate UK. What, what is ARIA? ARIA is really about saying, if you look at the full scope of uh, the way that we fund research today and the way that we fund innovation today, We've really, not just in the UK, but I would say globally, almost as a species, we've really explored a very small number of possible models. And um, those models become institutionalized and quite hard to, to change. And, and as a result, you get things that are efficient, but may not be the, you know, the best possible way of funding things. So you, know, you get career paths formed within science and research that, that become, you know, not not very malleable, become quite hard to change. You get, um, you know, sort of the risk profile of different funders, you know, becomes uh, somewhat set. And so ARIA's job is to explore new ways to, to fund science and, and research by by really being willing to take a lot of risk. Um, and, you know, we're, we're inspired by by DARPA, you know, the US um, Defense uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency that was at least partially responsible for small things like the internet and GPS and mRNA vaccines. And, you know, a lot of the way that they did that was by taking quite a radical approach to, to how to fund research. And I think our job at ARIA is to, is to try and be similarly radical in, in making the most, unleashing the, the science and technology talent that I already mentioned that, that we know is here in the UK. One of my reflections of spending a bit of time out in the valley and and so on is that a lot of people, particularly at Stanford, have worked in government, academia and business, that there is much more kind of revolving door policy between the three in different ways. And here it is still very, very siloed, talking about being on those set career paths in science uh, and so on. What more can we do in the UK to kind of break those down and encourage people to take the you know, take the the risk is perhaps the wrong phrase, but you know, try and explore the other areas. Yeah, right. I think I think some of this is um, the the key ingredient is time. You know, if you look at startup ecosystems as, as you have in Silicon Valley, one of the ways that um, they become successful is that as as companies grow, uh, you know, they they throw off capital and talent that fund the next, you know, kind of become the next generation of companies. And and if you look at the ecosystem around Stanford, I think the fact that the university has been at the heart of that uh, means that you you end up with professors who have been advisors or investors in big successful tech companies, or have started those companies themselves. And so, you know, everything they do when they're recruiting 
graduate students and postdocs that, you know, that's one of the lenses that they have. Now, to be clear, I think that's happening in the UK already. Um, you know, there's some incredible spin out success stories out of, you know, Manchester, out of Imperial, out of Oxford, out of many, many others. But I would say that it's a compounding advantage over time that, you know, it becomes part of the culture, part of the DNA. So partly we just got to be patient. Um, I mean, I, I think Aria is a good example of one of the ways that we can at least begin to solve these these challenges. So one thing, you know, again, like you know, we, we, we won't uh, really announce anything about Aria properly until the new year, but to, to give a sort of provocation, um, not to hold me to this, that this will you know be Aria policy, but I think... One challenge that I observe when I speak to very talented and ambitious uh, scientists who are early in their careers in the UK is, you know, if you ask a lot of these people, what is your most ambitious idea? They'll tell you something and you'll say, wow, that is incredible. If they could pull that off, it is world changing. And then you say, so are you working on that? And too often the answer is, no, no, I can't because I can't get the funding for that yet. I need to go and work for this person in this lab to get you know X number of publications with Y number of citations. And then at that point, I might be able to apply for funding to do a slightly less risky sounding version of what I just told you because that's what these people want to fund. And if I do that, then eventually by the time I'm sort of 45, I might have the freedom to do. And you're like, that makes sense. I can totally see how that system evolves. But I also see how if that become, if everyone knows that's the case, then the most talented and ambitious scientists in their early career are going to either opt out of that system altogether or are going to get pulled gradually into this less exciting, I think, less ambitious uh, world. And so, you know, in terms of what we could do better, I think Aria is going to have to uh, try and propose like alternative funding models for, for people that have that sort of high ambition, high risk appetite that, that are compatible with, you know, working within the system. You know, we're not trying to, we're not trying to be separate from the system, but but that can sort of inject some new incentives um, and, uh, and and new ways of working into what's already there. Um, no, that sounds a, a really exciting um, mission and so on. And we'll look forward to seeing all those announcements in the new year. Uh, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is, talent outside of the kind of golden triangle right and you were alluding to it there in terms of density actually the uk arguably the best place in the world for scientific talent where is the most exciting place outside the golden triangle for scientific development first thing i should say is i have i have a huge personal interest in this question because despite my uh now total loss of accent i grew up in bradford uh you know I, i went to state schools all the way through i sort of I really, you know, like got to know like a very non-golden triangle part of this country. And I'm really passionate about uh, the success of places like Bradford and, and you know, what we can do uh, there. And, and so I suppose like there's a slight cop-out answer, which is I think one of the remarkable things about the UK and you're kind of going back to my point about density of talent. If you go to all, literally every university I've ever visited in the UK, and you go and figure out what is the department that is most interesting here. Um, there are clusters in every university in the UK that are close to world leading. Certainly that's true in the top 50 universities in the UK. So, you know, if you go to, you know, like, I mean, the, the, the obvious answer would be to say Manchester, where there's been like, you know, really uh, amazing, groundbreaking, you know, Nobel Prize winning work, um, things like graphene over the last decade but but i think you can take a much broader view of that you know you 
you go to Sheffield and look at what's happening there. You go to Aberdeen and look what's happening there. You know, you go to Newcastle. You go, the, the, everywhere you look, there are, there are these things. And, you know, I think one thing that... Um, one thing that I think is a challenge for policymakers, but I think we should embrace rather than rejecting is how do you reconcile the, in my view, completely correct, um, you know, like leveling up agenda with the fact that everything we know about the history of technology suggests that clustering and agglomeration and concentration is the way that you achieve that. And I think the answer is you don't try and recreate uh, Silicon Valley or you know Silicon Roundabout for that matter in every place. Instead, you say, what is the edge? Um, you know, like, what is the edge of this um, of this geography? What are the plausible bases of a of a cluster here? And then you lean in very hard to building that cluster rather than trying to copy another cluster. And I do think a lot of that's about universities. Um, and you know, actually, if I was to say like we did, I didn't cover this in your answer to your earlier question, but what is the risk? I do think that uh, policy risk is that we, you know, in a, in a period of, you know, obviously very difficult fiscal um, uh, backdrop, we either neglect or, or, or fail to, to embrace our universities. I do think that the UK is pretty unusual, certainly in Europe, for the quality of its, of its universities. And if we don't, if we don't really, um, even in hard times, back them to the hill, it's going to be very hard to build those regional clusters that I think are the future of uh, economic success. Is there another area that you would just that maybe might not have come across people's radars as much that is particularly intriguing? Uh, in terms of technology? Yeah, in terms of technology, like or a university that's perhaps not associated with this as, as much. I mean, you, you name Manchester, which is a great example, but is there somewhere else that sort of people might not be as aware of? I mean, again, the real, I'm trying to think of like examples that, that would um, stand out. But, you know, I, I think if you go and look at what's happening in Southampton, um, you know, I think that's a department. Uh, so we do a lot of work there with the computer science department. You know, I think there's like world-class work going on there. If you go look at some of the stuff that's happening in space technology in, in um in uh, sorry, it's uh, you know it's pretty extraordinary uh, to see what's happening there. Um, you know, I, I really do think that one of the things that maybe we need to do a better job of as a country is is actually just highlighting these stories uh, everywhere. That I mean, we do do that, but you know, I think I think the rightly um, we're very proud of of having two of the best university, you know, maybe two of the top five universities in the world you know, in this very small geographic area, um, you know, within a hundred miles of London. I mean, it's absolutely right that we celebrate that, but I think, you know, I can think of individual academics in, in, in places across the UK that are doing work that, you know, is, is world leading. And, you know, I think, um, you know, one, one of my privileges over the last three years have been being on the board of Innovate UK. And if you look at the range of things that we fund at Innovate, it really is nationwide. Um, and, uh, I think if you, if you think about, um, again, this idea of clustering, I think, I think the key is for us to pick, um, you know, like five or six areas that we think have a competitive advantage in one of the key technologies of the future and, and really be willing to sort of lean hard on those as, as ways of, ways of building local economies. And it's 
great to highlight a few of them on the show those areas that are doing well um final section just wanted to ask you a few more sort of personal questions that you kind of touch on in the book and so on one of the things though that to sort of kick this section off that i was particularly struck by is that i rounded up 50 entrepreneurs to kind of write to the new prime minister a couple of prime ministers ago now to sort of talk about having this entrepreneurial competition in in downing street and and so on and so i emailed you and alice and both came back and, and signed it which is very grateful for Mark Kleinman then wrote the story up from Sky News and he put you and Brent Hobeman in the headline talking about uh, how you backed the new kind of entrepreneurial competition. And I just wondered how you found the pressure of that in terms of being you know, seen as one of the leading lights of entrepreneurship. Because you talk in the book about imposter syndrome and all founders going through that as well it's something that just struck me that that's a kind of like you know it's it's a a big thing for that story to be written up and for you to be in the headline with it how you kind of deal with that pressure side of it i think the, the 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 interesting thing about um ambition which has really always been the cornerstone of of what we've been trying to do at ef is to encourage people who are ambitious to kind of explore that ambition through entrepreneurship is that even as you become objectively more successful, you become more and more aware of what's possible and how much more there is still to achieve. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what we've built at EF. You know, I, when I zoom out and, and I look at the companies that we've helped to build, when I look at the people that have funded us, when I look at the the growth of an idea that, as I said, did did seem maybe a bit crazy and in something that's quite relatively mainstream. I, I'm super proud of that. But also, I, you know, every day look around me and see how much more there is to do. And, you know, if EF isn't 10 times bigger, you know, four or five years from now, then then I'll probably be really disappointed and frustrated with that. So, yeah, I feel really lucky to, to sort of be in a position where I can influence at least a little the conversation around entrepreneurship and, and innovation. But I, I do think of that as a sort of, uh, as I said, as a privilege, but but also something that comes out of, uh, just speaking to hundreds and hundreds, probably now thousands of, of entrepreneurs. And, you know, one thing that we talk about a lot in the book is the most important thing really is to know your customer. And at EF, our customer is the entrepreneur. And so you're right that, you know, like when people ask you like, you know, what should we do policy-wise for entrepreneurs? And you know, there's a, you know, non-zero chance of that actually happening. On the one hand that, you know, that that's um, that's a real responsibility. On the other hand, I you know, I, I feel like we've been, it's such a privilege to sort of, have been part of the founding journey of, of, you know, some of the UK's most exciting startups. And as a result, feel like you really do have quite a, uh, an intimate knowledge of what they need in order to succeed. So, um, yeah, I think it's a responsibility we take very seriously, but, but also one that um, hopefully is really grounded in, in a lot of the experiences of other entrepreneurs. And you talk as well in the book about sprints and marathons and, you know, you can't sort of always be sprinting as an entrepreneur, and you know you need to kind of check the sort of the your willpower gauges and um and so forth and i was just curious as to how you did that because the amount of stuff that you you've done that we've talked about you know, we haven't even gone on to innovate uk how you do that kind of personally as well i think there are a few different uh parts of this so i think one is um you've got to know what part of your work gives you energy and the the reality is not just as an entrepreneur, but you know, if you work in any you know, reasonable sized organization, not every part of your work is always going to give you energy. <laughs> like there are going to be parts of your day that you look forward to less. Uh, and I think 
one of the things we talk about in the book is how willpower is the most important resource. I think one way to ensure that your willpower is is preserved over time is to organize your your days and your weeks so that the parts of your job that do give you a lot of energy are, are present in that. And for me, a lot of that is just talking to entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of it's spending time with the founders. I mean, we got into this not because we wanted to be venture capitalists, but because we were passionate about talent. And actually, I would say, you know, today, I probably feel more energized about my work 11 years in than I have done for many years, partly because, again, being, you know, maybe maybe too candid, and if my investors are listening, um, uh, I'm not talking about you specifically, but, you know, I spent most of the last eight years actually just raising money spending a ton of time with investors. And that was very rewarding. And I learned a lot and I raised a lot of money. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned, when we switched to this permanent capital model, that's actually freed up a ton of my time that I've been able to switch from speaking to investors to speaking to founders. And I found that enormously energizing. And it's reminded me that, you know, like willpower is a, a variable, you know, it's something that you can recharge through doing more of the stuff that you that you really love. Um, but I think the other thing is, is really easy. And I'm sure we're guilty of this at EF to, to sort of, um, valorize founders and and put them on a pedestal. But of course it really is, uh, it's cliche because it's true. It really is about a team. And I think one of the ways that, you know, I, I've been able to not feel like I'm on a permanent sprint marathon is we've got an amazing team. And so, you know, actually my role at EF now is more and more about, coaching and training our team to be really great talent investors, which is what we think about how we um, talk, call what we, uh, what we do. Um, and so more and more, you know, I, I feel that gives me a lot of leverage to, to not be, you know, on this constant treadmill. I, you know, I, I feel I'm, I'm doing, you know, I'm working hard and there's lots to do, but it's, um, it feels like there's actually quite a lot of leverage in that. Um, and then, you know, finally, and maybe most importantly, I have a very tolerant wife who um, has uh, put up with quite a lot for quite a long time. I can imagine that. Um, just one final question, because I know we're right on time, is there's a great quote in the book that you cite from Chris Dixon, which says, what the smartest people do as hobbies on the weekends will be what everyone is doing in mainstream in 10 years time. What are the smartest people at the moment doing as hobbies at the weekend? Yeah, so I think the thing that I am paying a lot of attention to right now is the ways that biology and software are colliding. So I think, you know, like um, some of your listeners will be aware that right now this idea of generative AI is really hot. You know, the idea that you can create images from text prompts. You know, you say, show me a picture of two guys recording a <laughs> a podcast surrounded by books and you get like a really incredible picture that that's very cool and you know i'd say like a year ago maybe that would have been the right answer what i'm now seeing is more and more interest in like generative ai meets biology you know i'll give you a I'll give you a sort of trivial example which is that you know you got lots of lots of things that used to be expensive and now cheap right you know like um a lot of things in you know genomic sequencing for example but you know, to, to just briefly pitch two ef companies that are in this space that i think are the like very front edge of the wave you know both out of paris as it happens we have a company called um neoplants which just launched they've genetically modified a plant to detoxify the indoor uh environment so they take out of the air 
volatile organic compounds that would otherwise be there in a way that ordinary plants don't and then they sort of deposit in the soil. Like, that's amazing. Uh, we then have another company called Genomines that is using a similar idea of genetically modifying plants, but to mine metals from the earth through the roots and deposit them in the leaves of the plants. It's much more environmentally friendly to sort of uh, harvest genomine plants than it is to, to mine these metals. Now, they're two ideas that I'm very excited about. But my point is that 10 years ago, these would have been impossible. Five years ago, these would have been major, you know, like corporate level R&D projects. Two years ago, a startup could do them. I don't think it's that far off people being able to like experiment with modifying plants at the weekend. And, you know, there's a potentially dangerous side to this, but I think the positive side of this is, is, is really enormous. And it's just, it's just one glimpse, one example of what, what is just on the verge of becoming possible. That is a brilliant way to finish and also works for our pass the mic section for the other entrepreneurs as well, because those companies sound fascinating. So we'll uh, we'll get them on the show in the, in the new year. Matt, thanks so much for coming on. There's so much more we could explore, but we'll have to endeavour to do it another time. Thanks so much for having me, Jimmy. It was great. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.